Snare is a part of a series of poems that I wrote years ago um, that were inspired by the life and lore of Jimi Hendrix. Um, the collection was called Oral Anarchy, Aural Anarchy, A-U-R-A-L. And um, it was recorded as an album with a phenomenal musician by the name of Allison Chesley. She currently performs under the name Helen Money. And she and I created these pieces together as sonic explorations, you know, really of Hendrix's work and legacy. Um, you know, her approach was definitely from, you know, the musical legacy that he left behind. She plays cello, so she really did a crazy number with her cello. Uh, where she made it sound like an electric guitar. I mean, it was just like, she was oh, just how doing cool it. is that? It was a lot of fun to play with her around this work. And I would write the poems and then she would construct the music around the poem. So it was very much this conversation that we were having as two women about this, you know, really kind of powerful rock god, right? You know, this legendary rock, uh, rock musician. So I'll read um, this poem, which is based i like to write poems that are based on like rumors or poems that are based on like myths um maybe myth isn't really the right word like rumor or folklore you know um and there were of course i mean and you know hendrix kind of alludes to things in his in his music anyway you know talks about, you know voodoo child i mean he, he makes a lot of allusions to spiritual world madness you know what i mean and, and mixed up and so you know, I really kind of wanted to capture this rumor about, um, you know, this woman putting a spell on him, but also, you know, what it, what it means really to put a spell on somebody and how that can kind of whip back on you. Um, so it's really about a woman who tries to put a spell on him, but then who's kind of caught up in that spell herself. Snare, and it opens with two quotes. Jimmy often told a story about a girl who tried to ensnare him with voodoo. Harry Shapiro and Cesar Gubik. Whatever it is, that girl put a spell on me. Jimi Hendrix. One, tincture. One, rivulet of Stratocaster sweat. Two, thimblefuls of dust. Three, spit. Four, one shard of broken guitar pick, five, two strands of hair, six, stolen fuchsia scarf, seven, one shot of rum, eight, one lit red candle, nine, one plucked wing of nocturne, 10, two mason jars of river water, 11, one handful of bright eyes, 12, one drop of blood. Two, alchemy. I loosened the scarf tied around his thigh with my teeth in a room full of people while we sat on a blood red sofa getting high. He laughed. I leaned back, slipped the fine fabric from his leg with my fingers. When I looked at him, a shudder snapped, burned a light of his inside me. I wanted an infinity to lie under the crescent moons of his eyes. After that, my nights were furious, dreams full as a nine-month womb. A running white coyote I chased through a desert, a jade-eyed cat jaunting toward me while I reclined beneath a peach tree. He meowed once, coughed, 
a small ball of guitar string. A woman in a turquoise veil passing by me, whispering something I can't remember. Three, Oracle. The unconscious door is ajar. One breath blows it open. As I was compiling this episode with poet and visual artist Krista Franklin, who you just heard read Snare, I had a strange notion to see just how many episodes there have been of Poet Kind Podcast. I was surprised to discover that this will be our 75th episode and, as it turns out, will end up being one of my favorites. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation from the original separation of Krista's poetic and artistic pursuits to their brilliant joining in her book, Too Much Midnight. Krista's cross-genre work, as well as the multiple bodies of visual work she has under her belt, are compelling, intriguing, and surreal. She has been the recipient of the prestigious Joan Mitchell Foundation Painters and Sculptors Grant, an Arts Achievement Awardee of the Helen and Tim Meyer Foundation for the Arts, and has had her work featured at the Poetry Foundation, the Museum of Contemporary Photography, Studio Museum in Harlem, National Museum of Mexican Art, as well as numerous other institutions. Krista has been published in Poetry, Black Camera, and many more publications, anthologies, and artist books. One conversation with Krista barely scratches the surface of her accomplishments. Join me as I welcome Krista Franklin to Poet Kind Podcast. So welcome, Krista. I'm so Thank excited you so to have you here. Thank you for having me, Susan. Thank you. You are a visual artist, a poet. You live in Chicago. You're active, doing all sorts of really great things. And I'm excited to share that with my listeners, and especially those. I know I have a group that are out in the Chicago area, and I want to tell, I want them to hear all about the good stuff that you're doing. So if you want to start just by talking a little bit about who you are and how you got started down this path. Yeah, well, um, wow. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's really it's a big question. Story. It is. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I was always supposed to do what I'm doing. Mm. Um, I will say that. I mean, my whole life has pretty much been around making images, whether those images be visual or whether they be in words. And the older that I get, the more that I realize that it's not that big of a difference. I'm still in the business of image making, even if I'm writing. So I'm just, you know, as Toni Morrison once beautifully said, I'm just using the alphabet, you know, to paint pictures. You know what I mean? Um, so I feel like that's a centerpiece, you know, of my practice is, is image making. Um, you know, the images themselves tend to lean towards in the past, you know, very much fixated on um, history, specifically Black history, specifically um, African diasporic history. I like to think about Black history as not being located in one specific location, but being very much scattered around the globe. So you know, when I talk about Black culture, I'm not necessarily just talking about North American Black, you know, <laughs> talking about a very broad swath of Blackness, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
a way of living, a cultural understanding of the world, you know, that is very rich and very deep. You know, these stories, uncovering and re recovering stories that exist inside of me um, and try to find the language or the images that can. And so a lot of the work that I do is constantly about the work of uncovering and recovering to the wealth of that, you know, the wealth of those yeah. experiences. I can never fully approximate the depths and the beauty and the richness of those things. And sometimes even the horror, right? But mm -hmm. I think that it's my goal to try to come as close as possible to the, I will say that I'm from Dayton, Ohio. I think that that's important to my work because Ohio is kind of a very charged site to me, you know, just a very charged historical site. Um, there's a lot of really brilliant writers who come out of Ohio. You know, I've already kind of summoned her name, but Toni Morrison's from Ohio, right, Nikki Giovanni right. is from Ohio, Rita Dove is from Ohio, you know. Um, Dayton, Ohio in particular was really known in the 70s for its very um, robust music of funk. You know, funk is kind of one of the central locations of funk music. And so in the 70s, I was born in 1970. So in the 70s, it was a very... I don't know, active, you know, space um, where people were coming into town and there was a lot of music and there was a lot of vitality, creative vitality, you know, around funk music and, and the legacies of funk music. And that kind of went through, you know, to I would say even like the 90s, you know what I mean? Um, in different capacities, you know, we have Zach featuring Roger, also Lakeside. I mean, there's so many 80s groups even, you know, who were very influenced by the, by the Dayton, Ohio funk scene, you right. know? slave as well um so it's like heat wave i mean there's a lot of them um i could go on and on i love that that history about where i come from you know and it's something that i connect deeply to because i have a deep love and appreciation of music and of sound and of rhythm and of um well and that comes I, through too in your book and and for my listeners the book too much midnight i can't recommend enough because it is a visual written uh, exploration of your work and it's so well crafted but you, the musicality you talk about comes through musicalities you know of, sure. of a number of different kinds of ways and forms right so all of those things kind of loop in um on themselves inside of my imagination and then you know this outpouring this creative outpouring this artistic outpouring and practice of mine really kind of centers itself in many of those histories specifically for me, part of reading is reading something out loud and trying to catch that. So looking at an image that is directly yours and then saying the words that you've written, I mean, it, it's just, it's very masterful. So um, go out go out and order it or go out and get it from your local bookstore, have them get it for you. So that's to my listeners. Thanks for that plug. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I would say that Too Much Midnight is a really important book to me because it kind of is the first time that I put those two parts of my life together. For a long period of time, I think that there were people who knew me as an artist and there were people who knew me as a writer. I was kind of living a double life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I kind of joke around a lot about how I would sneak off to these different um you know, different parts of myself, you know, kind of like different parts of myself. I would speak off of these different spaces and, you know, people kind of didn't, did or did not know the, the breadth of the work that I made. So, you yeah. know, I know that there were time, times people would say, I saw this work of art and it had the name Christopher Franklin on it. Is that you? And I would be like, yeah. 
you know, sometimes I would say yes, sometimes I would say no. You know, I kind of, I was kind of cagey about it at first, but um, I came to make, I always made images, but I started to really take it seriously um, in my late 20s. You know, and I was writing pretty voraciously, pretty voraciously uh, and regularly, prolifically before then. So most people knew me as a writer before they knew me as an artist. So I'd say Too Much Midnight is, the, is, is for me the culmination of those two things, those two paths that I was kind of walking simultaneously. And it, it's really kind of a coming out, you know, a party in a way of, of me like kind of saying, yes, I do these two things and I do them simultaneously, or I do them, you know, at the same level. Do you know what I mean? I take, I yeah. take them. Well, it's, it's claiming that identity as a whole, as opposed yeah. to it's this or that. It, this is everything and it's right here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of it is older work as well. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of the work too much midnight is work that, you know, um, my, my good friend, AVR Young, you know, calls too much midnight, my greatest hits album. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because they're like work that even the poems are, you know, poems that have been with me for years and works of arts that have been with me for, for a number of years as well that I've had a chance to live with for a while. So, yeah. Well, I know you're very active in the Chicago art scene itself um, and, the, and writing and everything. You're part of a collective. And I, I just discovered this in the last little bit. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, collectives are really important to me in my practice. And I've been a part of a number of collectives throughout my life, you know? The one that I am um, currently in right here in Chicago is Dumont Noir. And Dumont Noir is a group of three artists, myself, an artist named Alexandria Eregbu, and an artist by the name of Devin Kane. And the three of us came together years ago when I was in graduate school, they were in undergrad and um, in various places. One, one of them was at SAIC, School of Art Institute of Chicago, and one of them was at Columbia College where I was getting my master's degree and Columbia College Chicago. So I, um, the three of us kind of came together after we were introduced. I was introduced by a um, friend of mine, Ruth Ellen Coker, another brilliant poet. She called me one day and told me about a manifesto by the name of the Afro-Surreal Manifesto written by this uh, author by the name of D. Scott Miller. And so I found this um, through, through, through Ruth, found this manifesto, it sparked just a whole wealth of information inside of me. And I shared it with Alexandria and Devin one day and we were just like, wow. And we came around um, one another and, uh, and kind of galvanized around this manifesto and started to really think about our own work in relationship to this manifesto and in relationship to the histories of the surreal, not just African surrealism, but you know, surrealism in European form as well. And just really started to rethink the ways in which we were making work. Uh, we were already, we felt like working within the surreal, which is why the, the manifesto sang so deeply to us. Um, and then we were really kind of being much more strategic about the ways in which we were thinking through um, Afro-surrealism, thinking through African surrealism um, and the histories thereof. So to me, the collective, and I think that they will probably say something similar, you know, I think it's something different for each of us, but for me, it's very much been a, a study group, mm -hmm. you know, 
a space where we come together and we really think through ideas and we pick through history and we pick through ideas and we read stuff and we have you know reading lists that we share with each other and we write different things and we make artwork and we create shows together, right? And so that's that um that's that collective. Dumont that's, that's really great because there's a there's a different kind of energy that happens when you begin to work with other people. And it, it's almost like it, I mean, I I haven't had the the benefit of working with anybody that closely in a while, but I can remember it just it opens up these different avenues in your thinking that take you places you never anticipated. And it's inevitably just so good. So true. It's yeah. so true. It does. And I mean, I think that to me, that's one of the benefits of I don't think any artist or writer can make it without community. You know, I think that that, that myth of like the soul, the soul artists working by themselves, toiling away in, you know, their dark room or whatever, it's like, it's a myth. I mean, if you're doing anything like that, you have to have a community of people around you who are supporting you, you know, yeah. in different ways and who are encouraging you to continue to make the work, right? So I feel like in that respect, it's been very beneficial to me because it does keep me on my toes. It does make hold me accountable sometimes. It definitely um, is inspiring, right? To be able to see also what other people are making and how your work is in conversation with each other, you know? So yeah. it's, it's all, of the, all of the collectives that I've been a part of throughout my life have, have hugely influenced the way that I think about work, the way that I think about my practice, the way I think about writing, all of it. Now, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. And I, I've been curious with the folks that have been talking to you recently about you know, like their pandemic experience, their post-pandemic experience, a lot happened even though technically the world was kind of shut down. Yeah. Did that affect your practice and your ability to um, not express, but be able to access certain ideas or thoughts or did it just kind of change everything for you? You know what, I, I will say, you know, that's kind of a little bit of a complicated question. I, a lot of my friends at the very beginning of the pandemic, they were laughing and they were kind of joking around about the fact that my life really wasn't going to change that much because I tend to be very <laughs> reclusive. I'm already reclusive by nature. So they're like, this, I, is, I'm like with normal, this is a normal Christopher Franklin day. And I'm like, yeah. Hey. you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I, I didn't work that much through the pandemic in terms of like making new work I was really very compassionate with myself in a way that I think many people were just not being for themselves I think that there you know there was just that, that this was some kind of a break no it was actually a really traumatic experience and we were all collectively experiencing so I wasn't going to work through that I wasn't mm -hmm. going to force myself to like be pro prolific or productive and I also had always been prolific and productive so for me it was a time to kind of really shut down and start to think about what I was doing the other thing that happened that had nothing to do with anything that I did it was just the atmosphere that was created yeah because everybody else had to slow down suddenly they could see me in a way that they had never seen me before and they could see mm -hmm. my work in a way that they had never been able to see my work before this this was this was something that I recognized that happened really quickly and it happened um throughout the course of the pandemic uh you know i mean we're still in it right 
But right. throughout the course of things, when things were really like all the way shut down, you know, it caused people to start to slow down and look and pay attention to things that had been circulating around them the whole time, right? Um, so with that said, things shifted on the upscale for my work. So things began to open up more. I started to get more um, offers for things. You know, people started to acknowledge that I was making work that they'd never seen before. I mean, you know, it was just a very interesting situation, you know, where I began to be seen more, mm. uh, I felt like, and recognized more for the work that I had been doing for years, you know. So in that respect, it's weird to say, right? But it was kind of a gift. You know, that, that period of trauma was kind of a gift to my work um, because it, it, it really caused, you know, the outside world to begin to put, put pieces together that they weren't able to do before because they was run, 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 run all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I tend to work kind of under the radar and I work long and I work hard. You know what I mean? So I don't, I don't stick my head up to be acknowledged for a lot of stuff all the time. I don't. That's not what motivates me is other people's attentions and eyes on me. I'm motivated more internally. So it gave okay. people an opportunity, I think, to catch up to where I was at. You know, yeah. I still think that people are caught up all the way to where I'm at. A little bit behind the face, but, you know, I think it gave people a chance to kind of catch up. Well, that's, that, that brings up a good point, because um, I think probably I was introduced to your work kind of on the beginning of the pandemic when everything shut down. Uh, for me personally, I'm with you. I'm an introvert. I work. I keep my head down. I do my stuff. Yeah. And my husband joke, you're probably one of the few people that are sad that the country's opening back up because now you have to actually go out and get groceries. Absolutely. <laughs> and engage with people. Yeah. yeah I'm like, I, I, I can stay inside all before. day. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah. yeah absolutely. But um, I had I had gotten a little blip about your um, your book, which might have gone gotten kind of a little lost with all the other stuff that was going on if I hadn't had time to sit down with it and then reach out and I was able to get a copy and actually enjoy it. Yes. And so um, and for my listeners, I reached out to Krista early yeah. and life kind of decided it had its own trajectory. And so I had to postpone. So this is a, a doubly good treat to get, get to sit down with you. Now I have the benefit of seeing this beautiful artwork that's behind Krista. And also um, if I'm wrong, just drop in there and correct me. You have a t-shirt on that has your artwork on it. Yeah, I place folks can order that. Yeah, I have a beautiful um, project that I have been doing for a while with my friend Eric Williams at the Silver Room. The Silver Room is a really spectacular store and really it's more than a store to me. It's a, it's a community spot. It's a location of like lifestyle, boutique, um, music, culture. It's, it's really a site, a beautiful, magical site here in Chicago. And, um, my friend Eric Williams is the owner and he's been, he's had this store for, for a long while now. And he was actually one of the first supporters of my work when I moved to Chicago and he allowed me to sell my work when I was still in my early phases at his store. Mm -hmm. He allowed me to have exhibitions of my work at his store. So I was really groomed in a lot of ways, you know, and held, you know, by him and by that shop, you know, as a space that 
allowed me to flourish and to find my visual as well as my poetic voice. You know, it kind of created this really safe space for a lot of artists, a lot of writers here in the city, right? And um, so during the pandemic, you know, I had been wanting to do a series of merchandise for him. And so he and I joined forces and we have a few products that we put out that have some of my older pieces on them, t-shirts and tote bags. And um, we're talking about a couple of other things too later on in the future, but right now it's tees and totes and they can be purchased at Silver Room's website. I, if we can maybe just focus a little bit just on your visual art. Sure. Tell our listeners about your process. Your work is, it's not, um, it's not like this one-off look and go, oh, I get it, that's great. This is, this is something that you look at and you, it takes a while. You have to engage in what you're looking at uh, to really gain any impact. Um, that's not to say it's not beautiful to look at as far as engaging and um, interesting, but there's a lot in there. Uh, yeah. What I'd love to hear a little about uh, your thought process when you begin a collage or whatever work you're right. working on. Sure, I think that I think the easiest way for me to talk about my work is to really kind of center it in collage. But I do think that I'm doing I am doing a lot of different things, right? The collage right. is kind of like the nucleus of the matter, and then I kind of expand from that. You know, um, I it's it's my goal to make work that arrests people. You know, I, I, I really want work in the world from my hand that does pull you in, you know, that makes you want to, it seduces you, you know, even mm -hmm. if, even if it's, um, cause I do make some work that I, I consider to be grotesque, you know, or that I strive to put kind of grotesquery in the work. Um, mm -hmm. but I do want it to be seductive still, you know, I do want it right. to be something that pulls you in and even if it's disturbing for you it, it, it lingers you know mm -hmm. it lingers and I think in my early days I was very somewhat didactic you know in my approach I was trying to make work about um icons you know black iconography you know and I was really kind of focusing on historical figures and also pop culture figures who had kind of really influenced my thinking. And so sometimes, you know, that some of that early work has a centerpiece of like one of these figures, right? It might be, you know, um, Steve Biko, or it could be um, Winnie and Nelson Mandela, or it could be, you know what I mean? Like it, it could be a number of kind of since big, big figures, you know, big historical figures, um, Jimi Hendrix, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I really was thinking a lot about the Black icon um, in that early phase of my work. And, I, and then I kind of started to branch off into some other things that, you know, impacted my imagination. So I'm very much about the interiority, you know, the in, what I think about is the interior landscape of a person or the interior landscape of a people. Um, a lot of my work has writing in it, you know, whether that be pages from books or magazines and actually, you know, you have to read it. You know, you're reading the, the, the piece as much as you are looking at it. Um, I'm really thinking a lot in my work recently, of course, about the surreal, very much thinking about um, the natural world always plays a really big part in my work. I'm constantly trying to push the envelope around notions of the organic and the inorganic. 
constantly pushing ideas about motherhood. Um, you know, a lot of science fiction texts influence my visual production. So, you know, I'm also bigly, usually influenced bigly. <laughs> I'm usually influenced by um, science fiction movies. Okay. So cinema, cinema affects my, my imagination quite a bit too. So, you know, okay. I'm very much into idea, uh, visuals that are, that arrest you, that pull you in, that are kind of tiny too, and you have to kind of go deeper and approach it, mm -hmm. you know, which is why I do think that, and I, and I am all over the place in my practice. Like, even though collage is the, is a nucleus, I paint. You know, I make mm -hmm. objects sometimes, you know what I mean? I kind of do, I make handmade paper as well, um, which means I'm pulping down stuff and reforming sheets, you know? So it's like, I have a- Which have in a, itself conceptually is is part of the artwork, which is- Definitely yeah, that's, part yeah. of the artwork. And that's, and that's a little bit more elusive, I'll be honest with you about Susan, mm -hmm. because- you know, when you tell people that you make paper, no one really knows what that is besides paper makers or artists yeah. who have been involved in paper making, right? So, you know, when people are like, you made this piece of paper and then collage on top of it, I'm like, yes. Or I made this whole thing and the collages are embedded inside of the paper, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're actually inside of the paper. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit complicated to even express to people who've never seen the process to even know what's going on. And it's very, and also the work can be very, some of the newer work is much more subtle. Yeah. And I would say my earlier work, my earlier work was much more bombastic. It's much more bright. It has a lot of activity. There's a lot of things happening in it. And some of my newer works are very like blanched, very kind of almost just white, semi-translucent things with like images peeking out, you know, very opaque and um, not as striking that was, you know, it's going to jump on you. You know yeah. what I mean? You have to go into it and really look. So I think that I'm, I'm still, I'm still finding different ways of expressing. There's no one way that I feel like I have to express, although I do lean very heavily on collage as a way of um, working. Yeah. Now, when it, when you, you cross over into the writing process, do you see any relationships between how you how you create your visual pieces and how you create, you know, a written piece. Mm -hmm. Do you approach it in a very different way or is it something that is more organic and less? I would say I'm always intentional and deliberate in everything that I do. Um, you know, I always, especially, I mean, particularly with the writing, I think when I'm writing, I am working through things that are troubling me. Mm -hmm. It's really when I'm writing, I'm typically having a conversation with myself. Okay. You know? <laughs> you know, it's typically me really trying to articulate positions that I have about things and to see if those positions held up. You know okay. what I mean? If they have a if they are valid, if they're if they're faulty in the thinking, if they're, you know what I mean? I'm constantly trying to interrogate. It's like they're like interrogations of self. You know, okay. when I think it's I like funny because when I think about my poems, the only way that I can really art, that I can best articulate my poetry is to think about them in the terms of Frida Kahlo's self-portraits. That's essentially what okay. I'm doing in poetry. You know, what Frida Kahlo was doing with the self-portrait as a painter, that's what I'm trying to do as a poet. I'm trying to just look as deeply into my own eyes as I can 
and be as honest and almost brutally honest, right? Um, which I think makes some people uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think everybody's ready for that kind of a brutal interrogation, you know, that I feel sure. like, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, and I think that there is a kind of intensity. People have talked about an intensity um, in my work, an intensity and, a, and somewhat of a brutality in my work, you know? Um, that I very much associate with being an American. I do. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I associate that part of my work with being an American and being influenced by American writers who are brutal in their text. You know what sure. I mean? And mostly who were, to be quite honest, to lay it quite bare, white male writers. Mm. You know, so writers like, um, that was very influenced by writers in the beat generation. You know, the 50s, 60s, the 50s writers, you know, very, very influenced also by you know, in hand in hand and in tandem with the Black arts movement writers, right? So we're talking about Sonia Sanchez and Mary Caraca and, you know, Nikki Giovanni and, you know, these artists who, these writers who um, embrace their Blackness and embrace Black language and the nuances of Black language and the dynamic nature of Black language, the musicality of it. You know, I'm really into that. Rap music, of course, is also a big influence as is rock music, you know? so. I feel like I learned a lot from all of these spaces. So the writing and the visual art come from two totally different spaces in me. Although I'm very intentional in both of those practices, they are very much operating in different spaces. I feel like I can be more free when I'm making visual art than I am when I'm writing. Because when I'm writing, I'm trying to be as, I'm trying to craft something very, very, very sharp. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. In a way that I feel like with 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 images, you can be a little bit more loose. You can be a little bit more free. Um, well, I don't think there's also the demand to be clear. Yes. When when you're working yes. visually, because yes. you're in you're creating a different environment. But with words, if you choose the wrong word, you can skew an entire piece, and Absolutely. it's it's lost then. Absolutely. I mean, I would say even that words are a little bit less forgiving, right? Mm -hmm. And also images can, images can render so many different interpretations, whereas words can kind of box you into one or two ideas. You know what I mean? So I think yeah. I have to be very much more strategic in the way that I write than I have to be when I'm, you know, making paper or making visual work or painting or collaging, you know? Um, or making some kind of an object, you know, I'm definitely trying to say something, but it has, you know, a little bit more wiggle room, you know, yeah. than when I'm form, you know? Yeah. Have you ever surprised yourself? Oh, I surprise myself all the time. Oh, all the time, <laughs> all the time. I mean, that's the joy of it. I think once I stop surprising myself, I'm just going to quit doing this whole thing. Because okay. then it's, it's yeah. boring, you know, then at that point it's boring. It's like, if, when it, once it becomes predictable, you know, and I, and I struggle against that. I struggle, you know, sometimes I don't write for long periods of time because I feel like I'm just writing the same thing over and over again. Oh, that um, makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, and I oftentimes will shut down my productivity based on these ideas that I have about being repetitive. You know what I mean? Um, because I never want to just continue to do the same thing over and over again that I've been doing. Life isn't like that. People change, you're supposed to change. Your work is supposed to evolve. You know yeah. I mean? Well, it, but in visual and in writing, when it becomes formulaic, you're not fooling anybody. 
Absolutely. People can see it and they'll know what's happening. And they sure will every time. Yeah. And even at the risk, right, of failing, even at the risk of making things that people will not find beautiful. You know, I, I, I go through phases where I think that people are very disinterested in the work that I make because they want something that I was making in the early 2000s where I'm not making that work anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can mimic that work for you. I know how to make that work, but it's a formula now. You know what right. I mean? Right. It doesn't, I'm not learning anything new about myself, about the world. Yeah. But, but isn't that interesting, though, because, you know, they demand freshness, they want something new to look at. But then when you really get into dialogue, what they want is what you used to do. <laughs> Always. <laughs> they want what they're used to, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. And they expect, they have, a, there's a certain expectation, I think, that people have out of you, you know, once they kind of become a little bit familiar with what they think that you're doing, um, you know, whatever is in the public eye, right? Sure then they want sure. you to keep replicating that. And I have no interest in doing that, you yeah. know. Well, as we kind of begin to wind down, I would like you to take a minute and share with folks, you know, maybe perhaps where they can find your work, where they can learn more about what you do, um, social media, those sorts of things. Yes, sure. I, um, you can learn a little bit about my work on my website. I will say not a lot, a little. <laughs> <laughs> ChristaFranklin.com. You can also learn a little bit about my work from my Instagram um, at the real Krista F is my Instagram handle. That's also my Twitter handle as well, even though I do not really tweet that much. Um, I don't really, Twitter is not really my thing. I would I say, um, you know, Google, I tend to be really I tend to publish and do a lot of different kinds of projects, you know, that are that are not secret projects. But you, if you Google my name, a lot of stuff will just come up, you know, on its own. I definitely encourage people to like read a lot of different books and stuff too. I mean, there's been a, I've been really lucky to be in dialogue as well with different theorists and different Black theorists and cultural theorists who are writing about my work right now, which I'm really excited about. So. Um, Badia Ahad has a beautiful book out right now called Afro Nostalgia. And um, she has written about my work in that book. So, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's some different places where my work can be found. Um, I just say, do a little quick Google search and you should be able to find whatever you need. Yeah, now with things starting to open up, do you have any? I, you know, I tend to, I tend to do a lot of, a lot more group shows than I do solo shows right now. Um, even though I'm continuously making work and, and I just, I'm not really driven necessarily to have a solo exhibition right now, you know? Okay. Still kind of trying to think it through, but there's always going to be some kind of space that has my work in it because I just like to keep the work circulating. Potential exhibitions coming up that you're a part of that people yeah, could maybe look into? Absolutely. I mean, I actually was exhibiting throughout the pandemic, which is kind of wild. You know, I had quite a few shows going during that period of time, which was weird, right? Because people were unable to go into the spaces, you know, or they were able to go in under very kind of tight circumstances if they were, if they made an effort to do so, right? So I had an exhibition um, at Frost Art Museum with a show there in Florida. I had an exhibition um, in uh, Santa Cruz. I had, a, I had quite a few things that were going. I had an exhibition here at um, Museum of Contemporary Photography and all of these were group exhibitions I had working in. 
Um, I have some shows that are going to be coming up, but they're going to be mainly in the fall and here in Chicago. Okay. Okay. So I have been ending my, my interviews with a question and I'm going to throw this out there for you. What is one question you just wish would be asked? What would you like somebody to ask you? Oh, wow. That's, that's, oh, wow. I don't even, I don't really know an answer for that. <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have a question for that. I don't have a question for that question. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I think people do tend to ask me the same things over and over again, though. I do think that. But I, I don't know if I necessarily have a question because I'm so private. I don't want anybody to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me any questions at all, you know? <laughs> oh, that's great. It's hilarious. It's so hilarious. No, I don't think I have a question that anybody would ask me, you know? Okay. Um, yeah, I don't think I have one. Well, if you come up with one at a later, later, later time, let me know. And I we'll, will. <laughs> we'll maybe oh. do an Instagram live or something so that you can that ask great. the question that doesn't get asked. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's oh. a great question. Could have been some of the other answers. I have to go back and listen and hear like some of the okay. other answers to that. That sounds great. That's fantastic. Krista, thank you. This has just been an absolute delight. Um, I've been excited to meet you and to get to sit and just listen to your talk about your work and uh, just get to know you a little bit better has been such a gift. So thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to sit here and talk with you this afternoon. So thank you for the invitation. Please look for Krista on Instagram and Twitter at the real Krista F. Visit her website at KristaFranklin.com to learn more about her visual work and writing. Also, make sure you grab a copy of Too Much Midnight, published by Haymarket Books, from your local booksellers or your favorite book-buying outlet. And stick around until the very end of the podcast to hear Krista read one more piece titled Motherline. A quick programming note. I'll be taking a break for the remainder of the summer to enjoy my family, friends, and just celebrating life along the way. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Poetkind is a place to discover poetry and enjoy great conversations with the people who create it. I also enjoy sitting down with other creatives to unpack how and why they do what they do. You know, getting to know someone and talking with them about what brings them life is a great way to build understanding and to make the world a kinder place to be. We need to stop comparing ourselves Compare notes, yes, to uncover what makes us who we are and remind us that we are more alike than we realize. Thank you for spending a few moments here with me on Poetkind. Poetkind is an unsupported podcast. I do this because I love it and enjoy bringing great writers, creators, poets, and listeners together. You can follow me on Instagram just by searching Poetkind. Make sure you say hi. And until next time, Remember, be kind to each other. Do whatever it is that makes you come alive. Write, paint, plant, sing, bring it into the world and help make it a better place to be.
Rescuing the Mother Line, which is also a really old poem um, that I wrote about a tattoo that I have um, that is the names of my great, great grandmother on my mother's side, my great grandmother on my mother's side, and my grandmother on my father's side. And I wanted to honor these women and um, I wrote this poem about the experience of being a tattoo. Tattooing the mother line. I am possessed by arrows, leaning back in a black leather armchair that squeaks when I move. A steady hand girl who shares my zodiac penetrates the freshly shorn, thin brown skin of my upper arm with an ebony ink dipped needle, sharp as the arrow of Cupid. She and I talk shop over the low humming, the tiny pricking and dragging of her stylus fingertip, engraving me with the names of three generations of women who walked the long path to get me here. When her moving hand becomes uncomfortable, I flex my toes to feel the slapping of my sandal against the sole of my right foot and lose myself in the funk of the Ohio players thumping from the small gray speakers that rest on a table in the far corner of the white room. When she is done, we admire the elegance of my angry scripted bicep, slick with Vaseline, and step outside for a smoke.